So this is the outline. Uh, basically, I want to introduce the concept of precision medicine, or some people call it predictive personalized medicines, or genomic medicine, and how it applies to the oncology field to give us the precision oncology uh, topic that we're talking about. Then I'm going to use one single disease to illustrate how we actually apply some of these principles uh, in developing this type of medicine for our patients. Uh, and that would be medulloblastoma. Uh, we'll do the biomarkers and then we'll look for new therapeutic targets for this disease. And then at the end, I want to also uh, give you an uh, overview of what we're trying to do as well uh, in terms of understanding the genetic susceptibility uh, to these type of uh, uh, diseases, as well as how we could potentially minimize the side effects of uh, our treatment so that our patients would have a much better outcome. So let me start out with a, a case which sounds hypothetical, but actually as oncologists, we deal with this on a routine basis. So during the discussion of his treatment, there's a 15-year-old male who asked his oncologist, what is the chance of him responding well uh, to the standard treatment that has significant side effects? The oncologist basically replied, 60% of our patients respond well to these uh, treatments. The patient then followed up with another question, so can you tell me if I belong to that 60%? To which the oncologist replied, no, I cannot. The patient then said uh, in his tears that in that case, I won't accept that treatment because there's a very good chance that I would suffer from all the side effects with no benefit. That's the challenge that uh, we deal with uh, in oncology. Uh, yes, we have a chance of curing the disease, but at the same time, we cause a lot of problems for our patients as well. So let me first introduce the concept of precision medicine. Uh, it's a very simple concept, but it's very profound when you think about it, why we are not doing that in the past. So if we take a group of patients that have the same diagnosis, even currently, we still treat the whole group of patients with the same treatment, probably the best treatment that we know uh, at this time. But we also know very well that only a subset of them would have the good response that we would uh, like to see. And in that case, then we have picked the right treatment. However, there are some patients who do not respond to that treatment at, at all. So if we're talking about cancer, the cancer progresses or relapse, etc. And so we still have to give the patient the same treatment until what we call the fail therapy. Actually, they never fail therapy. It's the therapy that fails them. But we always say that we, the patient fails therapy. <laughs> then there's a third subset that actually the cancer responds well to the treatment, but there's too much toxicity involved. So in that situation, a lot of times we have to think about either reducing the dose or switching to entirely different treatment. Won't it be nice if we could predict which patient belongs to which group right off the bat without initiating any treatment yet? Because when you think about it, for patients in this group, we are really doing a disservice uh, to them because they will suffer all the side effects just like anybody else who gets the same treatment. And yet they derive no therapeutic benefit from it. Just like that young man in the first case that I mentioned. So that's the motivation for us to come back with 
better ways of treating our patients. And the goals would be to maximize the efficacy of our treatment, but at the same time minimizing the toxicity as well. This is particularly important for pediatric oncology because the patients that we are dealing with are undergoing rapid growth and development. We cannot afford to damage the rest of the body while we're treating the cancer. And this is actually not a new concept because within oncology field, we know that the leukemia uh, patients uh, continue to enjoy the benefit of clinical research uh, as demonstrated uh, in this uh, slide here. I plotted uh, all the survival curves starting from the late 60s all the way to uh, early um, 2000. And as you could see, as we continue to carry out these uh, clinical research, we gradually but consistently improve the outcome of our patients. And this is based on the understanding of the disease as well as customizing the therapy based on the risk assessment that we uh, determine. So for a long time, people like ourselves who treat solid tumors we really envy our leukemia colleagues. We really wish that we have something similar. But for a long time, uh, we were stuck in very suboptimal uh, outcome of our patients. Until the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when the Human Genome Project finally got underway, we realized that we may have a chance to uh, do something uh, uh, fantastic for our patients. And that is understanding the concept that, after all, cancer arises from the accumulation of genetic changes in a single cell. And we know that these genetic changes ultimately determine the biological as well as the clinical behavior of the cancer cells. What we should do, we think at that time, is that we will try to create a comprehensive catalog of all the genetic changes that each type of cancer cells would have undergone before they accumulate enough of these changes to become a malignant cancer cell. In addition, we also felt that the reason why our hands are tied uh, in the past in treating these patients is because of the toxicity. The treatment that we offer to our patients basically cannot distinguish a normal cell from a tumor cell. The treatment itself just kills cells that divide uh, uh, all the time. And if that is the case, if we find the genetic changes that distinguish a cancer cell from a normal cell, then we have a chance of really developing targeted therapy that only would kill the cancer cells but sparing the normal cells. And then one last application of this type of uh, research would be if we identify the very early genetic changes before the cell has a chance to really evolve into a malignant cancer cell, then we are talking about the possibility of early detection and maybe even prevention. So that was the motivation behind doing all the genomic research about uh, uh, human cancer. And that's when I, uh, together with a, a group of people at Texas Children's, started this program in cancer genomics. And what cancer genomics basically is, is that we will make use of the uh, genomic technologies that were developed uh, through the Human Genome Project and apply them in studying the 
human cancer. Specifically, trying to understand the structural integrity and activity of all the genes in the cancer cells. So it's a pretty uh, brute force type of approach. We cannot afford to look at one gene at a time because there are just too many. And this type of research is characterized by high throughput methodologies combined with statistical and computational analysis of the results. So I taught myself enough statistics and bioinformatics to be engaged in this type of research. It was by necessity. People say, oh, I'm crazy. I always try new things. But I said, I try new things because I have no choice. I have to get this done. So, so I became involved in computational biology and bioinformatics research myself. So the goals of precision oncology is very straightforward. We want to develop genome-based type of diagnostics or biomarkers, as some people call them. And there are various types of biomarkers that we're talking about. Uh, we need biomarkers for diagnostic purposes. We need biomarkers for prognostic purposes. We also need surrogate markers to monitor therapeutic response. Uh, currently, for solid tumors, for example, once we initiate treatment, we have to wait several months before we repeat the imaging to see if there's any response. Whereas our leukemia colleagues, they don't have to wait. They can do a daily CBC and they will tell whether there's good response or not. So we were hoping that with the genomic research, we could also develop something similar rather than just imaging based. And then ultimately, we like to develop risk markers that could identify the uh, genetic risk of uh, people developing certain types of cancers. And along the way, obviously, we would be able to identify novel therapeutic targets such that the, each subtype of the uh, uh, same cancer can be treated uh, with very targeted therapy. So here's a cartoon to illustrate how that's done. And actually, we carried out this, uh, this um, uh, approach. So we developed a program that would allow us to do high throughput analysis of the genetic changes of the cancer cells. Uh, we call it Genomics Proteomics Discovery Engine. So as I mentioned, we use that to do biomarker discovery and validation. And then we try to identify and validate new targets. But at the same time, this information helps us to underline, uh, understand the underlying biology of these tumors, which actually ultimately help to uh, inform the prioritization of both the biomarkers and the targets. Once we have those uh, targets identified, we will carry out uh, preclinical drug testing and choose the best uh, candidate and move forward with uh, clinical trials. And the clinical trials is not just testing the drug itself, but also testing the biomarkers with which we use to do the molecular classification. And so we do both retrospective type of studies and then moving on to prospective type of studies. So that's, in a nutshell, is what we try to accomplish. So for the rest of the talk, I'm going to use one disease to, to illustrate how we apply these principles. So the disease is medulloblastoma, and we started out by understanding the uh, uh, classification of this disease by identifying the biomarkers. So metrobastoma is the most common malignant brain tumor in children. It's still a very rare disease. We only have about 400 new cases annually in the US. 
But despite multimodality treatment, including surgery, craniospinal radiation, and chemotherapy, the overall survival rate of all comers is still about 60%. So we're not quite there yet. Again, the challenge is how do you optimize survival but not putting the patients through excessive amount of side effects. And here's the survival curves, as you could see, why we are not happy with the current uh, uh, outcome that our patients have. And as you could see, if the patient has localized disease, they have much better prognosis than those that have metastatic disease. But once the patient has developed relapsed or recurrent disease or progressive disease, the prognosis is dismal. So we need better survival. But there are a number of obstacles uh, that we have to face in trying to change the uh, outcome of these patients. For a long time, we did not understand the underlying biology of these uh, pediatric brain tumors. In addition, we did not have that many good uh, preclinical uh, models that we could use for testing new drugs. So what we end up doing is to basically use you know, gut feeling and guesswork to pick the candidate that we want to try uh, in clinical trials. And then when we fail, we still don't know why we failed. It's a very frustrating experience for a long time. And even if we have a potential target, it's very difficult for us in academic medicine to do high-throughput drug discovery. That kind of uh, strategies belong to pharmaceutical industry. And then, because brain tumors is such a unique type of disease, simply because the brain is a uh, sanctuary uh, to many of the toxic agents that the body is exposed to, we have very limited approaches to get the drug or the uh, molecule that we think would be helpful in killing the tumor cells into the CNS. And so, again, we were stuck. So we figured out that the way to overcome these obstacles are also pretty well defined. Number one, of course, we have to understand all the uh, genetic alterations in the, uh, in the uh, various types of brain tumors that we are dealing with. And then we have to put in the efforts to develop the relevant preclinical models so that we could actually do some uh, meaningful drug testing. And then we try to steal the ideas from pharmaceutical industry in developing high-throughput technologies for target validation and lead compound identification. And then finally, because of all the other biotech uh, uh, developments around us, we started thinking about how we should exploit some of these uh, uh, targets uh, using novel uh, cell and gene therapy and nanotechnology. And I'll show you some of these things. So this is back to the good old days. Some of you might have been involved in genomics research, recognize this. A micro, good old microarray. Uh, this now belongs to the museum. But uh, it was a very powerful technology at that time. We could. Uh, scrutinize 20,000 genes activities all at once in one experiment. So we learned as much as we could using these uh, archaic um, technologies, and we published a paper back in 2002 with a group of collaborators, uh, some from Boston, some from uh, Seattle, and some from uh, uh, St. Jude. And that is 
without referring to the pathology of these uh, tumors, simply using genomic technologies. We managed to distinguish the several major subtypes of malignant brain tumors that uh, children have. So in this case, it's medulloblastoma, this is malignant glioma, this is raptoid tumor, this is, uh, at that time, it's still called PNET, now this term has disappeared from our field uh, because of the latest uh, WHO classification. So these are what we call heat maps. Uh, they are organized by uh, patient's tumors, each row, uh, sorry, each column is a patient's tumor, each row is a gene. The activity of that gene is color-coded, red being very active, blue being very inactive. So as you could see, we use a limited number of genes. We were able to distinguish medulloblastoma from, oops, from malignant glioma from, yeah, uh, etc. Mind you, if there are pathologists in the audience, this is not that straightforward. Even in the uh, hands of the best neuropathologists, sometimes these tumors can be very difficult to distinguish one from another. But we managed to do that. Uh, not perfect, but at least it gives us the hope that these technologies can help us. So over the last uh, 10 years or so, multiple groups have repeated this type of studies and confirmed that Actually, medulloblastoma is not one disease. It's actually at least four subtypes. And each one of them are genetically distinguishable. Uh, so for example, the wind subtype, they have a very well-known uh, uh, genetic mutation involving the beta-catenin gene and the chromosome uh, 6 uh, laws. And then the solid hedgehog subtype uh, is also distinguishable because uh, they have uh, mutations involving either the PATH gene or the smoothen gene or the SUFU gene. Don't worry about these names. Uh, a lot of them came from the fruit fly people. They, they are very cute names. Sonic Hedgehog and uh, other things. Uh, and then the less well-defined groups, group 3 and group 4. Now interestingly enough, each of them has uh, also different type of prognosis. So, for example, wind pathway, sorry, uh, uh, medulloblastoma have very good uh, prognosis. More than 90% of them will be cured with the standard therapy. Sonic hedgehog is somewhat intermediate. Group 3 is really bad, okay? And I'll show you in the uh, Kaplan-Meier curves. So, so the, the blue one is the, uh, the blue one is the uh, wind subtype. The red one is the uh, Sorry, hedgehog subtype. The yellow one is the group three, and the green one is the group four. So that gives us hope that now we know which are the bad actors, and those are the ones that we have to go after with more aggressive therapy. The ones like the wind subtype that have very good prognosis, now we can start thinking about backing off the therapy in order to uh, reduce the long-term side effects for them. And then, Next came the next-gen sequencing. We were done with uh, microarrays, so everybody switched over to next-gen sequencing. Um, and so together with another group of people, we published an, uh, a paper that was actually back-to-back-to-back uh, to, back to, back to two other papers, which came to the same conclusion, that each subtype of medulloblastoma as defined by uh, microarray uh, analysis 
actually can be further uh, delineated uh, by uh, genomic uh, sequencing uh, type of analysis. And again, that has confirmed our uh, hypothesis that uh, some of these uh, genetic changes probably uh, are quite robust and can be used as biomarkers for uh, not just classification, but for pronostication as well. So basically, using the same data sets, we started understanding um, some of the potential targets. As I mentioned, uh, there are two pathways that are quite distinct in uh, medulloblastoma, uh, the sonic hedgehog as well as the wind. I won't go through the details of this, but the long story made short is that uh, now we can have uh, uh, some of these targets being used for uh, therapeutic purposes. In this case, it's the smoothened uh, protein that is on the cell surface. And a number of companies rushed into doing that, not because they think that uh, this is very important to uh, cure medulloblastoma. Uh, my son saw my, uh, my speech. Uh, he said, you are too harsh on the pharmaceutical company. <laughs> I said, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> they didn't think that 400 new cases per year is worth spending millions of dollars to develop a new drug for. Fortunately, the soya hedgehog pathway is involved in a number of adult cancers, including basal cell carcinoma. And so some companies felt that it's profitable to develop uh, that kind of uh, targeted therapies. So a number of them rushed into doing this. Uh, the, the one that was m most mature was the one that was developed by Genentech, GDC449. And this is the chemical structure of that. And this drug has really amazing uh, activity. So this was a case report published in New England Journal of Medicine, basically showing that an adult patient with uh, medulloblastoma have disseminated disease before initiating this treatment. And two months after the initiation of this treatment, all the metastatic lesions are cleared. It's remarkable. Unfortunately, the uh, effect is not long-lasting. So three months later, everything came back because the tumor cells have evolved further and developed resistance mechanism, which is very typical of targeted therapy. Uh, we do not expect to see durable response uh, with a single drug. So anyway, buoyed by these um, uh, initial uh, positive response, uh, together with a number of people, uh, we decided to embark on this crazy journey, uh, dividing up medulloblastoma into nine subtypes, oh, sorry, eight subtypes in this particular protocol. And based on molecular classification as well as histologic classification to determine the risk uh, uh, of developing progressive or recurrent disease. And each one of them would have a slightly different treatment. The goal, again, is to reduce therapy for the good risk patients and intensify therapy for the poor risk patients. So this trial is still ongoing. Uh, hopefully, we will come up with some definitive answers and be able to say, yes, it's safe to reduce therapy for the wind subtype uh, medulloblastoma, or uh, for the group three, group four, we may need to intensify <coughs> therapy even further, but with a price. So 
I've told you about understanding the um, biology of these tumors. Uh, I want to show you a little bit of work for the uh, developing preclinical models that are relevant and useful for uh, drug testing. So in the past, the ability to predict clinical efficacy of new drugs against human cancer is very poor, partly because the models that were used typically were subcutaneous uh, xenografts of uh, human cancer. And so they are growing in a very uh, unusual uh, microenvironment <coughs> for these cells, and so they end up behaving very differently uh, from the native tumors. And so when you use these models to test drug, whatever you think is useful uh, would fail in the clinical trials. So we decided that we need to do something different, and that is maybe we need to put these tumor cells in the appropriate microenvironment where they belong. So we decided to embark on orthotopic xenograft models. And as you know, for brain tumors, it's not that easy. Uh, a lot of people have attempted to do this and failed because of the uh, high intraoperative uh, mortality rate. But uh, we decided to give it a shot. And as you could see from this uh, picture, if you put the uh, tumor cells in subcutaneous uh, environment. They develop all kinds of calcification. The tumors are very well circumscribed. They cannot uh, invade into the neighbor tissue. Whereas if you put it into the brain, they now mimic the clinical situation where the tumor cells rapidly invade into neighboring uh, brain parenchyma, and they don't develop these uh, massive uh, calcification. So one of my former postdocs, uh, decided to take on this uh, challenge, Dr. Xiaonan Li, and uh, he basically spent his whole uh, career developing these uh, models uh, to help us uh, create the panel that we need to do drug testing. So we nicknamed him the uh, physician-in-chief of our mouse hospital. Uh, we, at any one time, we have more than a thousand mice in the, uh, in the vivarium. Anyway, so the idea is to re remove the uh, tumor from the patient and then very quickly implant them into the similar location in the mouse. And then basically study the biology as well as using these uh, models to test uh, new drugs. And we did, uh, and as you could see, these models are actually pretty good. Uh, starting from two weeks, you can monitor the growth of these tumor cells and they even invade into the uh, lateral meninges, just like in the uh, clinical setting. And then when you use them uh, to do drug testing, they mimic the uh, human situation quite well. Uh, so this is uh, one trial that we did in our mouse colonies uh, using valproic acid, uh, which is a well-known anti-seizure medicine, but somehow has some anti-cancer cell activity as well. And proceeded to doing a clinical trial with the Children's Oncology Group, uh, and now it's in phase two study. So we have accumulated quite a number of these uh, models now of different uh, types of pediatric uh, brain tumors, and so we now collaborate with a number of institutions uh, worldwide as well as pharmaceutical industry in using these panels to do drug testing. And these Xenographs are really amazing. They really retain a lot of the original properties of the tumor cells that came out of the patient's uh, body, uh, including the maintenance of the stem-like uh, cells, the ability to withstand uh, uh, various type of challenges. Uh, 
So very quickly, I want to take you through some of the uh, high throughput drug discovery strategies that we have developed as part of the uh, uh, overall plan to over overcome the obstacles to drug development. So again, you know, these high throughput drug screening usually belong to the pharmaceutical industry, but because of the availability of lower cost type of uh, uh, robotic platforms, we are now capable of doing that ourselves, although not as the scale as the pharmaceutical industry. But what is even more interesting to us is the ability to do these in silico drug screening, which costs much less uh, than actually doing the uh, wet lab screening. And that is, once we have identified a theoretical target, we can ask what chemical structures actually could potentially fit into that uh, uh, target and interfere with the biological function. So we teamed up with uh, IBM, which uh, hosts the World Community Grid um, that invite volunteers to donate their CPU time when your uh, device or computer is idling. They can send uh, jobs to your um, computer and use your computer as part of the huge supercomputer grid uh, to do the uh, analysis for us. So, so two weeks ago we launched this uh, project uh, actually here at uh, CCMC. Some of you might have seen it on the news. Uh, we call it the Smash Childhood Cancer. Um, and so they are now cranking out all these uh, data for us. They think that they can finish the, the job in a few months, which is totally mind-boggling to me. It would take me probably five or ten years to do it, but they said we can do it in a few months. Okay. So, so we had the press conference here. Uh, even the governor showed up. So, that, <laughs> so that's how important it is to him. <laughs> so finally, I want to show you other things that we are working on uh, over at um, Jackson Lab as well. And that is once we have identified a target, can we make use of some of the latest technologies to get our treatment into the uh, uh, central nervous system? One of the approaches is to use uh, uh, immunotherapy, uh, making use of these uh, chimeric antigen T-cell receptors called CAR cells. Basically, it's combining the uh, signal transduction molecule of the T-cell receptor complex with the uh, antigenic determinant of the variable region of an antibody. So it's actually pretty clever uh, because the antibody has a way to distinguish an what happened? Didn't like, didn't like that slide. Um, and create this um, chimeric molecule that now can recognize whatever cancer antigen you want, but converting the T cell into a very powerful cytotoxic T cells that latch onto the tumor cells and killing it. Okay. So I just want to show you a movie. You, you probably don't believe me that it actually works, but it, it does, okay? So in the center of this movie, this is the uh, tumor cell, okay? These are all the uh, lymphoid cells that are floating around, but they have been transduced with the chimeric T cell receptor that recognizes the HER2 uh, protein on the surface of this uh, tumor cell. So you can see the cytotoxic T cells now are latching onto the uh, tumor cells and killing it. So hopefully you will now believe that 
it actually works. <laughs> if you are still in doubt, let me show you this. Uh, so these are mice that have been implanted with medulloblastoma cells that have been pre-labeled with a fluorescent uh, signal. So that's why they light up when we uh, uh, check their growth. And so on the top panel would be the mice uh, that have been treated with regular T cells <coughs> that have not been transduced. But the bottom panel, they are treated with uh, T cells that have been transduced with the chimeric T cell receptor that recognizes the HER2 protein. And as you could see, with one injection, uh, over four days, uh, the tumor cells are completely eradicated. So this is like Star Wars. But I have to tell you that so far it's only working in mice. Uh, so we still have to learn a little bit more to overcome that. So the good news is we can cure this cancer in mice. Okay. But we have to do it in humans. But because of that kind of work, we became part of the... Uh, only uh, uh, pediatric dream team of the Stand Up to Cancer. Some of you might have heard of this. You know, it's started by a bunch of celebrities, including Katie Couric, uh, that raised a lot of money for uh, cancer research. Uh, each team, they give $14 million and ask you to come over the cure. So we were chosen as the only pediatric uh, uh, dream team to tackle, tackle this uh, problem. And we use the immunotherapy approach. Uh, we call ourselves the immunogenomics dream team. Okay. And we're making some headway. So finally, I have a few minutes left to just show you what we're trying to do now uh, to understand the genetic predisposition to uh, cancer. And in this case, I chose to use glioma uh, because that was the cancer that we spent the most time with. The reason why we need to uh, study uh, the, um, the host genome is that the cancer genome can only tell us, uh, you know, what has un uh, the, the tumor cells have acquired in terms of somatic mutations. But we would have missed what actually triggered the initial uh, malignant transformation. And for that, we need to go back to study the host genome itself. And that is, what is the genetic susceptibility to cancer? In addition, the advantage of studying the uh, host genome is that we would be able to predict eventually uh, what kind of toxicity that that particular patient might experience when given the same kind of therapy, which is what we want to go after at the end. So there are various ways of studying genetic susceptibility depending on what kind of uh, uh, genetic variants we're talking about. Some are very highly penetrant but very rare. Uh, in those cases, we probably need to use the um, uh, linkage study type of approach or these could be some very common variants but a combination of which uh, may give you the uh, susceptibility. So we, we try both actually. So. Basically, they are um, done using an association approach. Uh, for every variant in each individual, we test the probability that this variant is associated with the phenotype that we are looking for. And so this is a plot of the probability against the uh, location of that variant according to the chromosome uh, location. And these are called the Manhattan blots. So if there's a 
uh, a dot here that has very high probability of association, that may be the gene that we want to go after. So several years ago, we formed this consortium 13 center worldwide uh, called the GlioGene, which is an uh, international glio glioma research uh, team of 13 centers, as I mentioned, nine in the US, four uh, in uh, Europe and, uh, in, and Israel. And this is the, uh, the team that we put together, and that's the first meeting. And initially, we used the linkage approach. Uh, usually, that's the more reliable approach. Basically, we look for families that have uh, multiple members uh, having the same disease and ask, what is the gene that is being passed on from one generation to another that is linked to this uh, uh, type of disease? And this is a typical uh, pedigree that we worked with. And we were very fortunate that we actually found a signal uh, using uh, this approach, and that was in chromosome 17. Uh, and we ultimately identified the gene involved in that uh, region, and that turns out to be a sheltering uh, gene, which is involved in preserving the ends of the chromosomes. Uh, we suspect that if the ends of the chromosomes are being eroded uh, as a result of the mutation, that this is causing genomic instability leading to further development of uh, the tumor cells. And then we also use the uh, alternative approach, and that is studying the sporadic uh, cases. And also, we were very lucky to find five loci in the human genome that is associated with the development of glioma. And so many groups in the world are now following up on this, and I think we are making some headway again. But. Lastly, I want to show you something really uh, interesting, and that is another type of disease that we normally see in children, and that is the germ cell tumors in the brain. These are very rare tumors, really one in a million type. But there's a male preponderance. What is even most interesting is that the incidence varies very widely based on geography. The incidence is eight to 11 times higher in Japan and East Asian countries compared to the rest of the world. So you can smell that there's a genetic component to this disease. So basically, I went to Japan once that I traveled all over the world, not to pile up uh, frequent flyer miles, but to get these projects up and running, okay? Um, and so together with the Japanese, uh, who have a lot more patients than we do. We collected 62 cases. That's considered as a large collection uh, for uh, this type of disease. And basically managed to find the germline variant that accounts for the higher incidence of uh, germ cell tumor in the Japanese population. I won't have time to go through this, but this has been published uh, in 2014 already. So if you're interested, you can look that up. And the gene is a uh, called JMJD1C. For those of you who like these uh, cute names, it's Jumanji gene. Uh, have you seen that? Uh, what, what's the name of that movie? It's Jumanji, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> monster. Yeah. The fly people call this the monster gene. Uh, it turns out to be very important in, in our type of tumors. And it makes a lot of sense uh, after we published our paper a number of papers came out showing that this is a very relevant gene. 
And lastly, I want to point out that we try to stick to our original uh, goal of predicting uh, toxicity in our patients. And we're making a little bit of headway right now. So for example, with uh, hearing loss that is associated with uh, cisplatin, for example, that we use all the time, we now know that there's one variant that contributes to that toxicity, and that involves the glutathione S-transferase gene. Not too surprising, because this is one of those detoxifying pathways. And, uh, but we keep marching on, and here, together with uh, Dr. Olga uh, Salazar, we are now trying to study what predisposes some of the children to the tox uh, cardiotoxicity uh, when they are given uh, uh, doxorubicin type of uh, uh, medication. So we're, we're making some headway, uh, but this is very early on in the journey. Uh, but I'm glad to see that many centers are now uh, doing the same thing. Uh, whereas 15 years ago when we first started, people thought we were crazy. This could never be done. You, you guys are just dreaming. But I said, we have to dream. Uh, so here's a take-home message. Basically, uh, the, that's what I've been trying to uh, advocate uh, anywhere that I go, including the cooperative group, because I was very disappointed with the way we, we did our trials in the past. Just keep trying, keep trying. If it fails, move on to the next one. I've been trying to say that we need to learn as much as we could from every patient that we take care of, including why the therapy we offer has failed. Do not abandon that study and move on, because then we would never learn anything. But our ultimate goal is to give the most appropriate therapy to each patient. Not too much and not too little, just enough to eradicate the tumor but not enough to cause any damage to the normal brain. That's what we need to do. And that's the kind of picture we would like to see at the end uh, of taking care of these patients. And to do this type of research, as I mentioned, requires international collaboration. Uh, I did travel all over the world <laughs> uh, because the incidence of pediatric cancer, fortunately, is low but it also makes running clinical trials and doing this type of genomic studies very difficult and challenging. So we need international collaboration. And we also need lots of funding. <laughs> uh, but we, we're really fortunate that we have a lot of people who believe in this and supported us, especially the patients and the families who uh, actually trust us in participating in the studies. So thank you for your attention. Thank you.